Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Thank you, Gary, for the introduction, and thank you all for coming. Um, before I start, uh, I must give some acknowledgements. I'm very, very fortunate to have worked with lots of people. And if you go onto the Web of Science, they've got this really interesting facility where you can see where all your collaborators are. And so I'm able to print out a, a map of the various collaborators that I've had. But I probably owe the greatest uh, acknowledgements to David Murray from the Oxford, uh, from the Nuffield Orthopedic Hip and Knee Group. Uh, I must also acknowledge John O'Connor, who is my supervisor for my DPhil. And then we've had some international collaborators who play a part in some of the work that I'm going to be talking to you about today. So, first of all, osteoarthritis is the world's most common musculoskeletal disease. Um, its prevalence is, is very, very high. It's very difficult to get a figure of exactly how many people suffer from osteoarthritis. It's difficult to do the research, and it's difficult to get the data from um, various countries. My daughter's joining in. She thinks I'm boring already. Um, the, the important thing about osteoarthritis is that it's a degenerative disease. And in some cases, in some very limited cases, there has been some auto-repair, but that's very young patients usually, and it's very rare. So if you've got it, it's generally going to get worse. There was a report in 2004 by the World Health Organization. And in that report, they highlighted that it's predicted to be the fourth leading cause of global disability by the year 2020. So we're not that far away from that uh, date. And one of the things that we get obsessed with in the Western world is cardiac disease. And in the same report, what they did was they showed the global prevalence in millions. So about 20 million people with moderate to severe disability from cardiac disease. At that time, the 2004 report was based probably on data that was collected in the 1990s. And what you see at that time, they were reporting almost, well, more than double that number of people uh, who've got cardiac disability with disability due to OA. So very much more significant problem than cardiac disease in terms of moderate to severe disability. So osteoarthritis, what is it? It's degeneration of joint cartilage and the underlying bone, most common from middle age onwards. It causes pain, stiffness, and this definition points out the three joints that get commonly affected, the hip, the knee, and the thumb joints, uh, get commonly affected with osteoarthritis. If we focus, this talk is all about the knee, and if we focus on the mammalian knee, the mammalian knee joint is actually very, very complex. And there's a small select group of mammals who can do something unusual. Uh, we're able to fully straighten our knees. Most mammals can't do that. Anybody like to have a guess, apart from man, who can straighten their knee? Which mammals? Sorry? Elephant. Elephant. Very good. Chris is on the ball. Giraffe? <laughs> Giraffe? No. Horse. Sorry? Horse. Horse? No. One more guess? No? No, cannot. Bears. Bear, yeah. So here we have the three groups that can do it. So you've got the polar bear doing a meerkat impression. Um, here we have the elephant, straight leg, and man. Now, if you look at these two other animals, 
they don't do exactly the same thing as we do. Your bear can't rotate about its knee, neither can an elephant. And we do something odd, we rotate about the knee. So if we have a little bit of a look at the anatomy of the knee joint, this is um, the picture from Gray's Anatomy. And what we have is the thigh bone, the femur, the shin bone, the tibia, and then the kneecap, the patella. And what's also important is all these soft tissues, so the, the, the ligaments and the muscles and the tendons are very important. If we remove the kneecap and have a look inside, what we see on the ends of the bone is this remarkable material, cartilage. And so both the femoral, the end of the femoral bone and the top of the tibia are covered in cartilage. This is a biological supermaterial. And when you look at it, it looks very plain and ordinary, but its complexity is immense. And the way it does its job is incredible. But we don't have time to really talk a huge amount about that. The other thing that's there in this knee um, are the cruciate ligaments. So this is the anterior cruciate ligament, and this is the posterior cruciate ligament. These structures used to be thought of as just being mechanical restraints to knee movement. But we've come to realize, actually, they play a vital part in the control system of our knees. So they're highly innovative. There's lots of nerves going to and coming from the, the ligaments. And then you've got these other two remarkable structures, the menisci. Uh, we'll have a look at in greater detail. And again, these are highly specialized. They tend to, if you hear about people and you hear about footballers having their knee cartilage removed, it's these things that get taken out, these structures, the menisci. So looking down on the top, you can see, so if we've removed the femur, if we look down on top of the tibia, you can get a bit of a better view. So here are the menisci and these are sort of horseshoe-shaped um, structures and they're quite mobile. The lateral one, the one on the outside of the knee, is more mobile than the one on the inside of the knee. And there you've got the anterior cruciate ligament and the posterior cruciate ligament. And this is quite an early drawing. And if it was to be drawn today, it would be drawn as a thicker structure with more detail inside. And it's quite a complex structure. Both of these things are quite complex structures. So you have this very intricate set of uh, biological apparatus, which is there to allow us to do our locomotion tasks. And we do something odd. We, we rotate about a fixed knee, which hardly any other animal does. So osteoarthritis of the knee is the most frequent form of lower body osteoarthritis. The knee cartilage gets damaged and gets worn off. The menisci and the ligaments become non-functional. And what was a shock to me when I um, came across this article, uh, in some populations, the lifetime risk of symptomatic knee osteoarthritis is as high as 45%. So it's almost saying one in, uh, one in every two people is going to get osteoarthritis or symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee. So if we have a look at the next ray of a normal knee, I hope you can all see that. The bones, the femur, seems to be suspended above the tibia. And that's because you've got that cartilage in between, which is not um, opaque to x-rays. And when you've lost that cartilage, the two bones look like they're touching. And that's where you've got the bone-on-bone -bone contact and the pain starts. There's also some deformity, and these little bone spurs are called osteophytes, and they start to develop, and there's some changes that occur in the bone. But basically, the cartilage is gone. And the cartilage is this material that allows you to take incredibly high loads without experiencing any pain. So, in the European population, what's the prevalence? 
Again, these studies are very difficult to do, and this was published in 2003. And what you see with age on the bottom here in years, and this is um, prevalence per 100,000 of the population. When you start to get into uh, your 30s, 40s and 50s, the incidence starts to grow up. Uh, and when you're over 80 years old, about 20% of men have got some symptoms of osteoarthritis in the knee. Sorry women, you don't do so well. Uh, the women get osteoarthritis uh, at an earlier age and more of them get it. So if you look at the population that's 45 years or older, of the men, 14%, this is globally, 14% of men over the age of 45 um, will have osteoarthritis, symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee. With the women, 23%. So nearly a quarter of women will have osteoarthritis of the knee. So osteoarthritis is progressive and it's very important to stage the, the stage of a progressive disease because the treatment that you can offer is often related to the stage. And the stage that's used, the common uh, grading system that's used is the one that was published by Kelvin and Lawrence in 1957. And this is an x-ray based system of grading. You have grade zero, so if you remember that perfect x-ray of the normal knee, that's what would be a grade zero. No features of osteoarthritis. You have grade one, where it's, you know, it's doubtful. Maybe there's some small narrowing going on. Grade two, mild. There's those little bony spurs that we talked about, the osteophytes. And there's some possible narrowing of the joint space. There's grade three, which is called moderate. So you've got multiple bony spurs, osteophytes, and a definite space, joint space narrowing. And then you end up at the end, grade four, which is severe. There's large osteophytes, there's marked narrowing of the joint space, and there's even deformity of the bone. So if you look at this spectrum of osteoarthritis, and if you have time going along in years here, so what we've got here is the, effectively the five grades going from zero to four of the Kelvin and Lawrence scale. And right at the end here, this is where you are if you're healthy. And all the way over here is end-stage osteoarthritis. But what you can have is you can have pain and disability in a, great, a graduated amount of pain and disability at any one of these grades. And the reality is that there's a poor relationship between symptoms and x-ray appearance. And I'm quoting from a paper, radiographic grade is an imprecise guide to the likelihood that knee pain or disability will be present. However, this, um, where the age of where the symptoms start to become worse appears to be related to um, BMI, to obesity. It seems that be obese patients have, these, have worse symptoms earlier on in their lives for reasons we don't really fully understand. The other thing about the grades of osteoarthritis which are less than four, we know from painful experience in uh, clinics and follow-ups, joint replacement is not effective for these stages. And one of the reasons is that you can't be sure that the pain is coming from the knee joint. And if you do a joint replacement, you might not have treated the source of the pain. And it's only really at this end-stage osteoarthritis will your orthopedic surgeon say, okay, we'll do a knee replacement. So, knee replacement. What you do in a knee replacement is you remove the diseased tissue and replace with metal and plastic components. So they cut the femur and the tibial bone to fit the metal components. 
and normally at least the anterior cruciate ligament is removed. So if you remember, all that fantastically bioengineered, wonderful biological apparatus, really complex, suddenly removed by the, by the orthopedic surgeon in order to get this, you know, reasonably unsophisticated bit of metal and bit of plastic into your knee. And this won't have any connection to your nervous system. So you won't have that ability to do any kind of nervous control with this kind of replacement. So here you have the femoral component, which is typically made of metal. You have a plastic spacer, which is high-density polyethylene, and a tibial component, which again is usually made out of metal, but sometimes it can be an all-polyethylene metal component. And the metal components are fixed to the bone, and usually it's bone cement is used, which is a type of grout. Uh, but these days, cementless fixation is becoming more popular. There are basically two different types of knee replacement. A total knee, where the whole of the knee structures have been replaced, uh, or a partial knee, which is often, most commonly, a unicompartmental knee. So if you've only got disease in one side of the knee, it makes sense to just replace that part of the knee. And this has some advantages. The undiseased side of the knee remains intact, and also you leave these control structures the anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments intact. So you've got lots and lots of implants on the market and we need to find out how they're getting on. And so what's been set up are joint registries. So the performance of joint replacements are monitored by joint replacement registries. The eldest of the knee replacements registries is the Swedish knee arthroplasty register which was set up in 1975. And these registries produce annual reports. And probably the biggest one uh, at the moment is the UK's National Joint Registry, or the National Joint Registry for England and Wales, the NJR, which was established in 2003 as a consequence of the 3M uh, catastrophe that occurred. So what do these registries tell us? If we look at the Swedish knee arthroplasty registry, the good thing about this one, it's got data going all the way back to 1975. And so here, if you've got years of operation on the x-axis, what they've got is a number of operations that have taken place. And what's really interesting is that year on year, there's been an increasing demand for knee replacement, and that's driven by osteoarthritis. And what's quite interesting is that rheumatoid replacement has really gone down. So the, the advent of, um, particularly the advent of anti-TNF drugs has completely changed the picture for rheumatoid osteoarthritis. The other thing that it tells you about is what happens to the prevalence of the disease at different uh, ages of the population. So here on the x-axis we have the age of the population going from 50 to 90 plus. And this is the prevalence of the disease per thousand. And what I want you to do is just focus in on this corner. I'll zoom it up a bit. And if you look at in 2001, the number of females who had the disease in 2001 who were 60 years old. What's happened in 10 years, it's more than doubled for reasons we don't really understand. Um, but it's part of this cycle that we don't understand. The other thing that's interesting about the registries is that the, what the surgeons are doing has changed as well. And you can see that by looking at the mean age that knee replacement is given. So here is the year of operation on the x-axis, 
and here's the mean age. And what you see is that for total knee replacement, the mean ages have been coming down for both males and females. Part of this is probably improvement in technique, better understanding of the way that the knees implants last, but it's also probably driven by patient expectation. And it's actually even more dramatic for the unicompartmental knee replacements. You can see the mean age is right now dipped below 65. So that's, that's quite something. Last thing from the Swedish Knee Arthroplasty Register. If we have a look at the age groups, what they've done is they've broken down the age group distribution for uh, knee replacement. And if we look at this age group, 55 to 64, we see that in 1995, or just after 1995, they represented a reasonably small proportion of the number of people getting knee replacement. In 2012, that has more than doubled. So it's interesting. This age group, young and active age group, more than doubled in terms of the number of knee replacements being used. And the data from our own registry shows the same trends. So last year, uh, the report that came out last year gave you the information for 2012. And there were over 90,000, nearly 91,000 knee replacements done in the UK. And about 60% of those were in women. And the average age was 68, about 69 for both men and women. The thing that I find quite uh, scary is that they're all for osteoarthritis. But if you look at these patients, the average BMI of the knee patients was nearly 31, and that's obese. So that's average. And so we, I think we have to be worried about what's happening. So what else did the registries show? What the registries really do is they track how long an implant stays in a patient. If it gets revised, it gets recorded in the registry. So the implants can wear out or become loose, and then a redo or a revision operation is needed. And so how long an implant lasts is measured by the revision rate at a given time point. Uh, the Swedish Knee Arthroplasty Register reports this thing called CRR, which is just the cumulative revision rate. So for all intents and purposes, it's the revision rate. And what we can see here, here we've got years after the operation, after the first operation, and they've broken the data down into different 10-year segments, 1976 to 1985, 1986 to 1995, 1996 to 2005. And if we look at the 10-year survival, so right at the start when the registry started, after 10 years of a knee replacement being in place, there was a 15% chance that it would get revised. So the revision rate was 15%. Then a decade later, we've improved. We've improved the techniques, we've improved the implants, we've improved um, the materials that are used, and that's more than halved. It's gone down. And then if you look in the decade, the following decade, again, it's improved. So that's something positive. That's really good. So that the 10-year survival has improved. And nowadays, what you'd expect, an implant to at last, the, the survival at 10 years should be at least 95%. So you have 95% certainty that your knee replacement is going to last at least 10 years. That's pretty good. But there's some complications. Age is an important factor in how long your knee replacement lasts. So if we look here at eight years after the operation, if you're above 75, and this is a slightly different operation, this is unicompartmental knee replacement, 
you've got um, about a 7% risk of revision at 8 years, not 10 years, 8 years. If you're between 65 and 74, it's a bit higher. But if you're less than 64 years old, it's more than double the risk if you're above 75. And that's all to do with activity. You're putting much more demand on your implant. So that's survival. Survival doesn't tell you about how much pain you're in after knee replacement. So pain is the main driver for most people to go and seek treatment. And most patients report that they have a significant reduction in pain after their knee replacement. But knee osteoarthritis is also functionally disabling. And so another reason for people to go and get treatment is they can't do what they used to do. So it's a pain and the lack of ability to do things. And one thing that we need to be aware of is that total knee replacement doesn't generally return patients to normal levels of function. And the way that the knee moves and feels is altered after TKR. And actually it's not unsurprising. You had all this wonderful apparatus, highly evolved structures, which are just chopped out and replaced with a bit of metal and plastic with no uh, controls. So function actually depends a lot on the patient, depends on the surgery you have, and to a certain extent, it depends on the implant design. <coughs> what you can't do a great deal about is you can't do much about the patients. The patients are the patients that they come along. We, we can improve things about surgery, and we can think a little bit about implant design. And most of the work that we've been focusing on for the last 20 years is really to try and address surgery factors and implant design factors. We have looked at some things about patient, and we'll I'll just go through briefly what we've done. So human knee has a complex motion. It's not a pure hinge. It's very tempting to think about it as a pure hinge, but it's not. Uh, the amount of knee bending is measured by the knee flexion angle, which I will abbreviate to KFA. So here's a leg straight, and the knee flexion angle is zero. As you bend your knee up, the knee flexion angle increases, so it goes 45, 90 to 120. And how the femur and tibia move as you move the knee flexion angle is probably the easiest way to describe knee kinematics. So knee kinematics is the study of how those bones move relative to each other. What we can do is we can measure how those bones move by a number of different uh, techniques. But the simplest thing that we developed uh, in Oxford was this concept of the patella tendon angle. So here's the patella, the kneecap, and it's joined by a ligament to, uh, sorry, a tendon to the, the tibia, which is called the patella tendon. And if this is the long axis of the tibia, there's an angle between that long axis and the patella tendon. And when the knee is straight, that angle is positive. And as the knee bends, that angle changes direction. And what it does, it gives you an indication of how the, this thigh bone, the femur, is moving on the tibia. And what we developed was a technique using fluoroscopy, which is basically x-ray movies, uh, for want of a better word. And we can measure patients doing activities, and we can see how their bones are moving relative to each other, either before an operation or after an operation. And so what we've done is done a whole series of studies looking at normal knees and then different types of knee replacements after um, surgery. And here is my, uh, this is my uh, ex-PhD student, Ben, who's standing in the fluoroscope, and this was one of his projects to measure lots of patients. 
and he ended up carrying this thing around, this apparatus around to different hospitals, setting it up and measuring lots of patients. And he must have measured quite a few hundred. So what did we see? So this is that knee flexion angle I talked about, going from 0 to 110 degrees on the x-axis, and this is the patellar tendon angle. And for a normal knee, what happens is that your femur rolls backwards, so this patellar tendon angle decreases. It starts off at a positive value and then decreases. And then we looked at a knee replacement. And what you see with a knee replacement is that it's actually quite different. And is it, it's not only that it's not at the same value, but the trend is different. The direction in which that angle changes is different. So what we conclude is the pattern of knee motion is different to normal after total knee replacement. And that's generally true of all the designs of knee replacement that are out there. In Oxford, we're very into unicompartmental knee replacement. And if you remember the unicompartmental knee replacement, you leave the other side of the knee intact and you leave those ligaments intact. And here you've got that normal knee uh, patellar tendon angle in the thick line. And we've looked at unicompartmental knee replacements where the anterior cruciate ligament is intact and where it's been reconstructed. And what we see is the pattern of motion is actually very similar to, to normal after unicompartmental knee replacement. And this is one of the reasons why the group I used to be a member of were very, very keen on promoting unicompartmental knee replacement. There are other things that we have to look at in terms of patient outcomes. So the registries, as I said, just focus on survival. And we see that total knee replacements have good survival, better than 95% at 10 years. However, we know that total knee replacement is not as effective as total hip replacement at restoring function. And we also see that a significant number of patients have persistent pain after surgery. Um, quite a while ago, David Murray, whom I worked with in Oxford, did a study looking at all the knee replacement patients that were treated in the Nuffield Orthopaedic Centre. And he found about 30% of patients had some form of pain. And it might not have been disabilitating pain, but they continued to have pain at least seven years after their surgery. And work done in Belfast by David Beverland has seen that significantly more knee replacement patients are unhappy compared to hip replacement. In the ideal scenario, we'd like patients to forget that they ever had a, hip, uh, a knee replacement. They do that with hip replacement but they don't tend to do that with knee replacement because it's never quite the same. The National Joint Registry is now recording patient-reported outcomes. So in a limited number of patients, it actually has how the patients feel they're doing. And if we look at what's been reported, this is for hip replacement. So here in the big circle is patients saying they feel much better than they did before the operation. What I want you to concentrate is on this little box here. So the blue is about the same, the orange is a little worse, and the green is much worse. And actually, you know, hip replacement doesn't do too badly. Most people feel much better, and there's some patients who feel uh, much worse. However, in knee replacement, you can see the size of this box is much bigger. There's lots of people who are about the same. There are a few who are a little worse, and there are some that are much worse. And we don't really understand why some people are much worse. One of the things is that total knee replacement surgery is a major physiological insult. If you think about all those structures I talked to you at the start, they're full of nerves. 
And what you do is you just cut straight across them. And patients have significant pain post-operatively. And uh, this is something that patients have to be told about before they go for uh, knee surgery. And these days, actually, with the advent of online blogging, lots of people have got on there, and one thing I picked up was this. Horrible pain. The pain medicines made me irritable. It was the longest and worst pain I have ever gone through. You get these kinds of stories. But actually, the post-operative pain is expected, and it should be understood by the patient. What we're quite concerned about is the patients who have persistent pain. So the surgery didn't work for them, and we don't know why. And it's difficult to predict which patients will have persistent pain, and we definitely need much more research into pain. We don't understand the mechanisms of pain in these patients. And what will be useful to do is to be able to understand who will actually be worse after they have a knee replacement, because if for them it may not be the right answer. So we focused a lot on unicompartmental knee replacement. And as I said, one of the benefits is that it has almost normal kinematics. So the patients have a very high level of function and they're able to do things that knee replacement, total knee replacement patients can't do. But unicompartmental knee replacement has a few issues. It's not suitable for all patients. Uh, you, know, you need to have unicompartmental disease and you need to have early diagnosis if you're going to have one of these knees. The surgery is tricky and it's difficult to learn the surgery. And it seems to be highly dependent upon experience of the surgeons, the outcome of this surgery. And most patients report pain during the first year, which then settles. But actually the pain is a little bit higher than most surgeons would expect uh, because of the intervention is much more limited. But we do see patients reporting pain. And there are a small percentage of patients which have persistent pain. And quite a lot of the research that we carried out in Oxford was focused on these four issues, trying to understand how we could improve these four issues. The work that I want to share with you is a bit about patient selection, first of all. Many patients believe that unicompartmental knee replacement is not suitable for patients who are very overweight with very large BMIs. And, you know, it makes sense. It's this tiny little implant that you're putting into somebody, and if there's a very heavy patient on the end of it, it might not last very well. And we looked at this in some detail. We studied nearly 2,500 patients, and we used this instrument, which is called the Oxford Knee Score. And it's a patient-administered score. The patient says how well they're doing. And if they score zero, they're awful. And if they score 48, they're doing pretty well. So what we had in our study cohort, this is the distribution of patients uh, by body mass index. And we had uh, a fairly good spread of patients from below 25 all the way to above 45. And there were two centers. And the first thing that shocked us, actually, we were expecting these two centers to be much more separated. Because center one is in the UK and center two is in the USA. Um, you know, there's a bit of a trend, but worryingly, we seem to be catching up with the Americans in terms of BMI. If we just a quick reminder of BMI, this is the uh, World Health Organization classification. There's so much obesity now, they've actually broken obesity down into obesity 1, obesity 2, and obesity 3. Uh, but then generally, if you're over 30, you're considered to be obese. And if you're over 40, uh, that was what used to be called morbidly obese and the term's not used anymore. It's now you're in obesity 3, whatever obesity 3 is. And 
there was something really interesting that we found. This is the age at surgery. And when you look at those groups, you see this linear trend. So the higher your body mass index, the younger you are at your surgery. And that has some implications. All those things I talked about in terms of survivorship has some really important implications. The other thing that we looked at was the preoperative function of these patients. And it's not unsurprising that if you have a higher BMI, you have lower function. So these graphs are split up. This is the Oxford knee score. As I said, that 48 is the best. And with the ones with low BMI all the way to high BMI, this is the distribution of scores. So lower function if you have higher BMI. Postoperatively, you see the same trend, but the gradient of that arrow has changed somewhat. And then if you subtract that one from that one, you see the difference of the operation. And this is what's really interesting. Actually, it's, you get a better improvement if you're more obese. So actually, this knee replacement helps you if you're obese. It returns you to more function, which is systemically a much better thing. So this was quite a landmark paper because it broke lots of people's perceptions about who should be given to, um, unicompartmental knee replacement and who shouldn't. Higher, higher BMI, large improvement in function. The other thing is that that stops unicompartmental knee replacement being used more is that it's difficult. And it's difficult to teach. It's very difficult to teach. So what we did was we created a virtual reality tool to help surgeons learn. And the nice thing about a virtual reality tool is you don't end up cutting any patients when you're first trying to understand what it is that you're doing. And we spent quite a long time doing this. Uh, we had some nice graphics. You could choose your instruments. You could go through the indications. You do the surgery choose your instruments, you go through all the steps. One of the things about unicompartmental knee replacement, it's very many more steps that you have to go through in the correct order and lots of checking to make sure you do the operation correctly. And this was what this um, simulator trainer did. And we wanted to see, does it make any difference? So we got a bunch of young trainee surgeons and we split them into two groups and we had one on standard training and the other ones on our system, which we call VITA. And actually, when we scored them, scored their technical competence in theatre, the ones that had been trained with VITA were significantly better. So, virtual reality-based surgical training improves surgeon performance and reduces the learning curve. And it's maybe something that we should be looking more at now. Um, and it's just difficult to try and get it implemented in lots of different centres. The other thing that we were very concerned about was pain after unicompartmental knee replacement. And you'd get to go to a clinic for the patients who just had their replacements, and they'd say, does your knee hurt? And they all say, yes. And you say, where's your knee hurt? And they all go here, and they point to the same place. So we did some computer modeling, and we tried to understand why they were all pointing to the same place. And what was interesting is we found high strain in exactly the same region where all the patients report pain. So when we do our computer modeling, what you're seeing here is the strain being plotted on top of the model as the implant moves around. And one of the things with the unicompartmental knee replacement is because you've put a very stiff construct into bone, it tends to change the strain quite a lot in this area where the patients complain of pain. And understanding that was quite an important step. We did some further modeling 
And in this further modelling, we tried to look at little variations that you might do during surgery and what it was about those variations that might make a difference. One of the things that was really important was about how much this implant overhang the, the bone. And originally, it used to come in a limited number of sizes. And then changing the size range then allows the surgeon to more accurately match the bone. And it reduces the incidence of pain. So computer modeling showed the relative placement of components is very important. So we could make surgical recommendations based on this model result. And it's actually quite difficult to try and get people to understand how something in the computer can help you. It's completely unreal. But it can help you understand the problem and then actually make surgical recommendations. And so this was something that we were able to do with this one. There are some outstanding issues that I just want to cover before I finish. So we're going back to this spectrum of knee osteoarthritis. There's these people here. And there's this concept now developed of something called the treatment gap. So if you have this Calvin and Lawrence grade less than four, you won't get a knee replacement because we know you're not going to do very well or possibly you're not going to do very well. And there was a landmark paper by uh, London et al. It was based on US data. But they estimated there's about 27 million people in the US who are in the treatment gap with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis for whom all the conservative measures have not produced any relief. But they're not yet ready for a knee replacement and they need something. And some of these patients may be spending 20 years with this disability, not having any effective treatment. Because we know if we give them a knee replacement, it's probably not going to work for them. And what we need urgently is effective therapy for these patients. So what's the cost of symptomatic neoed? A very interesting study done in the Netherlands, uh, published a couple of years ago, very large-scale study that looked at huge numbers of patients who hadn't been operated on but have symptomatic knee, replacement, uh, knee pain. And they estimated that it's on average about 10,000 euros, 10,500 euros per year, of which less than 20% is the medical cost, so these are the pain-relieving drugs. But eight, more than 80% of that cost is due to the productivity loss that's associated with their disease. So if you do a very simple calculation, overly simplified probably, and you say, if you look at the population who are over the age of 50 years old, we know that 14% of men over the age of 45 have symptomatic NEOA. Let's be conservative and let's say it's 14% of all the population. And the stats which are available, which are out of date because lots of countries are joining the EU all the time, but there are 355 million people who are over this age. What you come to is that symptomatic NEOA costs more than 500 billion euros a year in Europe. That's quite a lot of money. Let's have a little bit, uh, look at the reasons for revision. Again, data from the Swedish knee arthroplasty. And what we see is that more than 20% of total knee replacements are revised for infection. I'm not going to spend a huge time on infection because I'm a mechanical engineer. But one of the things that I am concerned about is infection. And one of the things I think the public, public in general are not aware of is how our options for dealing with infective organisms are running out. Uh, we don't really have very many effective treatments left. 
because of antibiotic resistance. And infection is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And there are quite a growing cohort of patients in whom the infection is not resolved. So it doesn't matter what you treat them with, they seem to keep carrying the infection. And this is a disaster. The next biggest group is loosening and wear. And this has some consequences for the bone stock. So the effect of a failure of a knee replacement is that you get bone loss. And I hope you can see it on this x-ray. You can probably see it better here. So this implant is loose. And what you can see is there's like a hole in the tibia. And there's quite a bit of bone lost around the femur. And there's a process called osteolysis where bone is being taken away. And then the other thing that happens is bone is an intelligent material. And if you get stress shielding because you've got this stiff implant, you can lose bone as well. So a failed knee replacement will have less bone for the surgeon to work with. And that really has some problems for the future options. So again, if we look at time progressing, here's your primary TKR. If that fails, okay, you can have a revision. But there'll be a bit of loss of bone in between that. If that fails, you might have a second revision. You should remember that a revision carries a higher infection risk than a primary. If that fails, what do you do? You probably don't have enough bone stock for a third revision. You may not have enough bone stock for a second revision. Then your options are limited. And you can fuse the joint or you can have an amputation. And I think it's something that lots of people are not aware of, that your future options, there's not that many of them. If we look at the NJR data, so the, the latest data, there were 6,000, oh, just over 6,000 revisions. And there's nearly 20% increase from 2011 in terms of revisions. And in addition to those, there were 21 fusions and six amputations. So not a huge number, but what you see is that number is increasing. So we do know that there's a coming storm. There's an increased incidence of knee osteoarthritis. I've shown you some of the data about that increased incidence of knee osteoarthritis. Uh, there was a very provocative paper by Steve Kurtz out of the US, and they predicted about a 700% increase in demand for knee replacement by the year 2030. We know that there's a lack of effective options for early stages of knee osteoarthritis. We have a society in which the decision to treat has now passed to the patient. So there's a tremendous amount of patient pressure. And the power has moved to the public. So there's a trend now to use knee replacements in younger patients. And again, I showed you the data. So there's going to be a greater demand for revision surgery. And we have this issue about infection, which remains there. And the more times you get revised, the higher your risk of infection. And there is going to be a dramatically increased societal cost unless we can do something to stop this storm occurring. So there's an urgent need for research. And funding is vital for research. The one thing that we really suffer from is that politicians think that musculoskeletal disease doesn't kill you. It does kill you. It just kills you slowly. Life kills you even more slowly. But uh, what they're obsessed about is cardiac disease. So you see them very proudly say, we've been able to reduce the number of deaths due to cardiac disease. But again, I bring you back to this figure. There are twice as many people, and this is data from 2004, out of date. That 
graph is going to be much, much bigger now. And it's going to impact society for a lot longer. The cost is incredible because people don't die, they just stop being able to do things. What I did was I looked on the MRC's research portfolio and I looked at what the MRC had given grants. In. Now, if you look at neurological, 531 grants given in uh, neurological areas. Cardiovascular, 226. Musculoskeletal, 85 grants. That's the premier organization for distributing research funds medically in the UK. Uh, a lot of UK research is funded by charities. And if you go onto the Charities Commission website, what you can do is you can get a rank order of the richest charities. Actually, what I was surprised about is that Lloyd's is the richest charity, yet they do hardly anything charitable. But that's a different question. So, coming in at number six is Cancer Research UK. That's good. They're up to nearly 370 million income per year. British Heart Foundation, just about 260 million per year. Age UK comes in about 160. They don't actually fund research as such. They mostly fund helping people to live as they get older. So here is our premier musculoskeletal arthritis research uh, charity, 26 million they made last year. Orthopedic research, 17 million last year. So, you know, what's interesting is that it's public perception that drives where the money goes. So, in summary, what's wrong with knee replacement? Knee osteoarthritis is common and is a major global burden. The incidence is increasing, it's driving the demand for knee replacement. We know that after a total knee replacement, your function is compromised. We also know there's a growing treatment gap because we can't do anything effective for those patients who haven't got end-stage disease. And that's costing us a huge amount of money as a society. There's a trend towards actually giving knee replacements to younger patients, but we know that will lead to more revisions. Infection is a growing problem. And what we urgently need is novel therapies that can work, are cost-effective, and we can treat people much earlier on in the disease process. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, before I say thank you to uh, Richie, I think we have a bit of time for questions if you have to answer some. I thought there was no questions. <laughs> yeah. I'm the chair at the stage. Well, I, you know, it's actually interesting what you think is a disease. There's a strong genetic component for the risk of osteoarthritis. We know that from uh, the cohort studies. There was very innovative cohort studies, um, sibling studies carried out uh, in Oxford. And we know that there's a strong genetic component to that. But it is a disease. It's, you know, something has gone wrong with your, the tissues of your body and has compromised your health. So, you know, it's a really, it is a disease. But one of the problems is that just thinking about BMI as a mechanical loading issue is too simplistic. 
It's much more complex than that. You know, as we start to reveal things, we go, oh, God, it's much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. And it definitely seems that um, metabolically, a lot more is going on with increased BMI than we thought originally was going on. And definitely there's an endocrine effect taking place. It's kind of a brief answer, but... Have one more question. Then about so, um, that's the first thing that came to my mind, that obviously being obese with so many people, uh, being obese requiring this treatment, it's the payload that the, the joint is taking and the metabolic component. Is there any data on whether these people were obese a long time before they had the knee pain? Or could it be a reverse causality where the knee pain means that they've had 20 years of being active? Mm, no, uh, the suggestion is that actually, right, it does seem to be that the obesity comes first before the knee pain. But once you've got it, it's cyclical. The very interesting thing about cartilage is it's phenomenal material. If you look at, uh, you know, look at the Olympics, you see what those athletes were doing. The loads they're placing on their joints, you know, you're not going to, put, you know, most of us are not going to do that. The cartilage is fine. It's not upset by that. Uh, you know, and there was a, a fantastic experiment done in the 70s by Whiteman. And they wanted to understand how strong cartilage was. So, and they were convinced that impulsive loading was something that damaged cartilage. They were able to apply an impulse which shattered the bone underneath the cartilage but left the cartilage intact. You know, and you know, it's an, a phenomenal material. But it requires biological sustenance. Um, it doesn't repair itself very quickly. Um, you know, very, very limited scope for repair. But it's, it's much more complex than just the mechanical load. Great. Well, we're going to have occasions when you can perhaps talk to Richie afterwards. <clears throat> well, I think you can see from that fantastic lecture why Oxford was so pissed off that I managed to persuade Richie to come to the We brought a great skill. I feel a fantastic overview of, of, of the whole arthritis area and, and the problems. And of course, Richie comes from the Oxford School, which are the uni people. Uh, it's quite interesting. I've been to a number of Oxford meetings, and they regard a total knee replacement as a partial amputation. And they are evangelical about the uni knees. In fact, they prefer to have tricompartmental knee replacement than a total knee replacement. We could argue about that for many, many days. But um, really, I think what says all of it is that they say about an Oxford man that you can always tell an Oxford man that you can't tell him much. And I think Richie has more testament to that. I'd like to ask you all to join me in thanking Richie for a fantastic and all the work.